this is sort of a fitting tie-in because we've been talking over these past weeks about the importance of what it means to root ourselves firmly in the truth and the grace of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that we can confidently and humbly bring the gospel to the world is by having a firm footing in Jesus. And about a month ago, give or take a little bit, we started this summer series in Ephesians chapter 6, which talks about the, the armor of God, the particular tools that God has given us to be able to not just sort of live in this world, but to flourish in it, all right? And so today we're looking at the third piece of armor that God commands us to put on, which are the shoes of his gospel of peace. We've already addressed the two that were just read to us. We've talked about the schemes of the enemy many weeks ago. We talked about the belt buckle of truth, and last week, or at least for the past two weeks, the breastplate of righteousness. So if you were not here for those teachings and you would like to hear them, they are online. You are more than welcome to check those out. I like to say that each one of these messages, really, they are standalone. They're designed to create sort of a teaching in and of itself. But it does help to have the gravitas, if you will, of this series combined. Because each one of these things is deeply connected to the other. And so today, we're, we're going to approach this next piece of armor by looking at two very important Christian truths. Today, I want to look at and, and really leave this room with a clear understanding of what the gospel of peace is. It's, it is clearly so central to the armor of God. And what we'll learn today, in part anyways, is how it empowers us to deal with any and all. And I want to repeat that. Any and all of life's challenges and circumstances. That's one of the great blessings of the, our feet being fitted with the good news of the gospel of Jesus. It prepares us for anything that we deal with on earth. And then next week, this will be a two-part study, if you will, on our feet. Uh, next week, we'll talk about what one of the, the main evidence is, maybe even the greatest evidence, that you have believed the gospel like we're talking about today. And mainly what I want to mention next week is that your life begins to take on Christ-like characteristics, in particular peace and joy. And so with this in mind, I want to jump right in and look at the only truth we're going to examine this morning. We've been talking about what it means to stand firm in the world against not only the schemes of the enemy, but the things that challenge us in life, the things that really impede us from, from flourishing in the way that God has designed us to flourish. So to stand firm against life's difficulties, and the key in this is that challenges, trials, circumstances, are one of the things that can sort of knock us off of the throne of life if we're not careful. To stand firm against life's difficulties, you must believe you have everything you need in the gospel of Christ. This is very important. We are, we are given this piece of armor because it is a foundational piece of armor. It does something very important for us that helps us to honor Jesus all of our days and live to the full potential that he's created us to live in. And I want to reread a section of what we, were, we just read, Ephesians 6, verses four, chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. And there we read this. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The belt of truth simply meaning we undergird ourselves with the objective truth of Jesus Christ as revealed in the scripture. When we are thinking about life, when we are thinking about our faith, we are trying to understand our life and our faith from the angle of how God has designed it. The buckle of truth, right? With the breastplate of righteousness in place, two weeks we talked about this. Simply put, self-righteousness is not what helps God love us. God does not look at us and think you're good enough or bad enough. Neither one of these ways or these life philosophies are enough to help us earn the favor of God. And the beauty of the hard edge of that statement is that it is in Christ alone that we can earn the favor of Jesus. We don't even have to earn it. He gives it to us. We look to Jesus and we are made righteous. Very critical piece of this teaching. And then we read today, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
Now, in order for us to understand what Paul is talking about here, we need to answer two questions. We'll answer one this week and another one next week. This way, you'll be out of here before 1.30. That's my goal today. If we were doing two questions, you'd be here a lot longer. We, I want to take some time to sort of expand upon what is God's gospel of peace, since it is so significant to this text and the rest of the Bible at large. So in today's church culture, the term the gospel has become very popular to talk about. And that, I think, is a really good thing. Well, I'm not saying in every single church circle, but over the past 10 years or so, there has been a, a renewed vigor in understanding, living out, and applying what the gospel is. And I do believe that that is a very good thing. It's a wonderful thing. In the Bible, the gospel simply means in Jesus, God brought good news. I've said this before in this room. The gospel literally means good news. And he brought this good news to a very bad situation. The problem of sin we spoke about a few weeks ago. One of the reasons we need to understand the beauty of the righteousness of Jesus, it's because it helps us to fully nail our sin to the cross. We're not, we're not sort of given that instruction by God and then given the pressure of having to sort this out on our own. In every way, God made a way for this to happen through Jesus. He made a way for us to know the Father in heaven through the cross. And so the hard edge of sin, which we talked about, actually can become something beautiful if we understand how Jesus made a way for us to leave our sin behind and follow Christ on earth. The problem of sin we spoke about is directly addressed by this good news. And in these teachings, we learned over these, this past month that to varying degrees, every person carries a rebellion against God in their hearts, which we can easily sort of, it easily causes us to see distortion in our life, lies, subtle distorted truths, about who God is to us and how God sees us. The idea of this teaching is that when we apply the armor of God to our lives, we are given a, a unique ability to not only see God in a meaningful way, but to understand how God sees us. Because the great scheme of the enemy is the subtle distortion of God's truth. And we looked at various examples over these past weeks of how that happens. And so our inability to fully deal with the problem of sin shows us in multiple places that we need a champion. We needed somebody to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Amen. And this is truly where Jesus enters the picture. He's the continuation of the way God has desired to, to know and reveal himself to the world. We see this in the Old Testament with his covenant people Israel, and we see this in the New Testament with his people of the church. And so the beauty and power of the gospel of peace is that despite, at times, our apathetic posture towards God, or at times in the world, the hostile attitude that people can have towards God, God still sends Jesus to die for us, to restore us to him. And what Jesus does on the cross gives us the foundation of what we understand as the gospel today. His death, his life, death, resurrection is, is what now secures us as a, as a child of God. That identity that God bestows upon us through Jesus, his children, is fixed permanently because of what Jesus has done for us. And so here's where we're going to get a little practical this morning. If, if we believe that this is true, if we believe that the gospel is central to the Christian faith, if we believe that the gospel is God's great good news to the world, that we don't have to rat race ourselves into favor before God, we don't have to earn the approval and the favor of people on this earth, we actually can, no matter what our life circumstance is, we can be thoroughly confident that God has approved of us in Jesus, loves us in Jesus, and cares for us in Jesus. That gives us a, a truly unassailable platform in life. One that's not meant to lead us to arrogance, but one that should deeply define a new sense of humility in our lives. If we believe that this is true, then we should naturally believe that, that with all this newness that comes from the gospel of Jesus, 
There is also new life in Christ. Jesus also gives us a new way to look at life. These teachings we talk about each week are not dusty, old, antiquated ideas with no meaning or relevance to our lives today. They are ancient truths that actually have deep and significant, immediate application to our lives today. Part of the beauty of the armor of God, and in particular the gospel of peace, is that it gives us a new, a new set of spectacles to look at life through and our life through. We are supposed to no longer see the world through our eyes, but through the good news now of who Jesus is and his resurrection. And the promises that he's given us in light of it. And so understanding this truth, dwelling on this truth, meditating on this truth over a lifetime will slowly help us to unravel the distortion that sin has caused in our hearts. Nobody escapes the distortion of sin. The beauty of the teachings we're talking about is that God in his infinite grace helps us to sort of, he brings us back to the truth. And so dwelling on those promises really causes us to see life more clearly and confidently. Primarily, and this is why we're going to talk about this next week in detail, primarily with a greater sense of peace, hope, and joy. And here is the reason why. I want you to think about this for a moment. Uh, Easter, you know, we celebrate that once a year. And for some of us, that's just a footnote in the calendar of, of 2018, 2019, 2020. We look at it as a singular worship service, which is really a shame because the, the reality of what the gospel has done for us is meant to impact every single moment of life. And so when you know Jesus has the power to conquer sin and death for you and I, what that means is that is not a past tense power. It accomplished a past tense event. The cross nailed sin uh, to the cross, no pun intended, forever. But when we dwell in that truth and know that truth, it also means that the same power that we hear about in Jesus, the same power we've experienced in Jesus, is actually applied to our lives in this very moment to deal with any scheme of the enemy or modern life trial you and I might face. It is a permanent power, a sustaining power in our lives. And so when you understand the good news of the gospel this way, it allows you and I to truly live and grow in God's grace and experience the heart-deep peace and joy of Jesus. Now there's a challenge with this because there are many Christians who walk around the world hearing truths like this, but they do not experience the type of peace and joy we're talking about here. And I don't want you to hear anything naive or idealistic about what I'm saying right now. I think we do a disservice to our life and faith if we think that we follow Jesus and that automatically means that life gets easy and we don't have troubles or struggles and that to follow Jesus means we sort of permanently exist in this utopian state of peace and joy. That is not the reality for most of us. It actually is not the reality for anybody. We might sort of cloak ourselves in that robe, but the truth is that life can be very difficult. And following Jesus, as beautiful and as wonderful as it is, can be challenging at times. And there is something right about being honest with that, okay? But I want to talk about the people who, they don't even understand a truth like this based on the reality of the difficulty of life. They just don't ever experience hope or peace, or rarely do. They think this is a false promise or maybe something that God dangles over their lives as like a carrot they can, they can never grab. And I think this really happens because there has been a very popular but incredibly truncated view of the gospel over these past years that has hurt our understanding of who Jesus is and the type of relationship he wants to have with us. For a lot of people, especially in decades prior, when we were talking about, not we meaning me, I'm, I didn't do this, I'm, I'll have my own things to be complained about in 20 years when people are talking about what we said in this era of the church. But right now, what I'm talking about is this, this idea of the gospel was almost entirely reduced to understanding like what I like to call the door into heaven. 
We simply saw it as the beginning of a relationship with God the Father through Jesus, and then we sort of forgot about it and moved on. And the problem with that, if you think about the theological consistency of where that leads, is if we simply see teachings like this, the, the beauty of being fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace, if we simply think that that just means an entrance or a starting point into heaven with God, what that does is it, it almost synonymously makes discussion about the gospel uh, equated with the reality of, of heaven. And I'm not at all opposed to heaven. I deeply believe in it. But the problem with just having a future hope of heaven is that it doesn't often deal with the reality of the struggle we go through right now. It can be a hope for the future. But if you're on earth for 75, 85, or 90 years, we want a little more than just the promise of tomorrow being a better day. And this is why I say the gospel often has a truncated understanding. The gospel does, without question, give us a, a future hope for heaven. It's one of the great beauties of the, of the truths of the scripture. But it promises us so much more than just that. And in this sense, we have seen the gospel short soul. Because when God really understands, when he, when he hears our cry to him, and we look to Jesus and want to know God through him, when his love comes into our lives like that, when we are forgiven and approved, redeemed, that is not just a deliverance from the past penalties of sin. Don't hear me undermining the significance of that statement. There are two whole teachings on that. It certainly does address the past problems of sin in our life. It's also, though, the release from the power of the schemes of the enemy in our lives today. It has both past, present, and we can even say future application. His love becomes the source of all of our hope and confidence in life to press on when life gets difficult or hard. And this is the side of the gospel that I think is often missed. Please hear me when I say this. It's, it's probably the most important sentence I'm going to utter this morning. When we often think of the gospel, we look at it as sort of the entrance way into the heaven, into, into relationship with God. It's a, a ticket to heaven. But the problem with that is that we, we miss an incredibly important fact. That Jesus doesn't just offer you God's grace and forgiveness, as wonderful as that is. He isn't a conduit for that. He also offers you himself as your ultimate source of peace, joy, and strength in life. It isn't that God gives you the promise of, of spiritual and emotional stability. It's not just that. He commits himself to you to bring about those things in your life. He doesn't just give you a ticket. He gives you him, his whole self holding the ticket. There's two very different things there. Think about this. If you've ever been in a meaningful relationship with somebody, a parent, a sibling, somebody you care about, if they said, hey, go do this, right? Hey, go drive this car. Yeah, you could drive the car, and you would understand that that person has given you some form of a command. But if that person labored with you for every moment of your life, for the rest of your days, maybe you had great difficulty learning how to drive the car, and they weren't just rattling off an order to you, but they sat next to you in the seat and helped to shape every moment of your life so you could drive the car, that would produce two different types of relationship. The one is very utilitarian, go do this. The other shows a deep level of love, empathy, and care for seeing whatever it is you're being instructed to do brought to fruition. And this is where I think we miss it sometimes. We don't just, we don't just get commanded to do things in the Bible. We're not just instructed to be something in the Bible. We are given the full complement of the heavenly, heavenly host in Jesus to actually bring these things to fruition in our life. And that is an incredibly powerful reality. Because if we miss that, then we are likely going to miss the promise of God's peace connected to it. God's peace isn't an abstract thing. It is actually presented to us in the person of Jesus, who is our Prince of Peace. So to pursue peace without him is, at the best, a bit of a, of a reduced understanding of how to move forward with this. 
So that's the bullseye here. That's what God wants for us. But there are also contrarian ideas that, that compete for the, for the mind and the heart of the believer in the world today. So what I'm saying here is this is how God has designed it. But there are places where we, whether intentionally or with a, with a benevolent ignorance, we look to things that we think are going to bring about the types of promises in Jesus that only Jesus can bring about. As beautiful as this truth is, it's very common, even amongst Christians, for, for people to seek their ultimate joy and peace in their life circumstances. And this is why I entitled the main truth that we're talking about this morning, what I entitled it. I think the greatest thing that competes for our hearts when it comes to understanding the type of peace, hope, and joy that the gospel can bring us is circumstances. They're the things that we think in our lives, if they would change or be better or we could tweak them to this degree, then our life would get better. And I'm not saying that certain circumstances don't, don't bring that about in our life, but I am saying it is a shifty God that we worship if we think that circumstances ultimately correct all of the difficulties we might deal with in life. And so we call this, at least in our peer circles, what we call this is a functional savior. And I want to explain what I mean by this. These are the things that we often look to in life that we believe are going to save us like Jesus did from whatever it is that we believe we need to be saved from. And that word saved is not even being used in a religious context right now. Maybe we have financial difficulties or relational challenges. These are the things we wish would be redeemed, changed, fixed, made right. It's in those moments we, we look to these things and we think if something would just change here, then, then life would be better. And so if you've ever looked to a functional savior, and I say this sort of gently and humbly, it's very likely everyone in this room has because they are so common. This is a natural rhythm of the human heart. There's no judgment in that. I do it myself. There are times when I'm looking in a different direction that I think will satisfy me in a way that only Jesus can. When we do this, when we, when we look to these saviors, uh, if you've ever actually done this, then you likely know the pain associated with them when they fail you. Because if you follow this through to the end, what happens is, is they promise the seed of God, but they cannot deliver the seed of God. And so a good example of this, I'll give you a very practical one, since we're sitting in a room right now that is filled with a bunch of people who are largely a part of this church family. A good example of this can be seen in the way some people who infrequently, if ever, participate in the life of a church, they will come sort of running to a church when they face a significant life crisis that reminds them they are not as in control of life as they once thought. Things like a sudden death or maybe it's an unforeseen illness, uh, deep trauma, the loss of a job. You see where I'm going with this? Something happens on Tuesday that you did not expect to happen on Monday night. And as a result, the human heart loses its peace and it demands stability. So we often scratch at things trying to have it restored to us. The church itself can become a functional savior. Try that on for size. The very thing that God has put on the earth to dispense his goodness and grace to the world can be, if we're not careful at times, a distraction from what the actual peace God delivers to the church is. Now, please hear me here. This is one of the reasons, when we talk about people who have great need, this is one of the reasons the church and our church exists. And a good church is really going to try to care for people through a situation like this. Unfortunately, here's the dilemma here. If a person looks to the church or something else to ultimately redeem what's going on in their life, to, to fix what's going on in their life, to correct it, what's going to happen is eventually whatever they look to, in this case the church, will not be enough for that person. Because while a good church, even one with amazing servant leaders and compassionate congregants, 
And, uh, uh, and we can certainly bring somebody to the peace of Jesus. We can speak the words of truth to them. We can comfort them. We are truly the conduits to the goodness of God. We are meant to be like directional signals through our experience and the way we, we usher people into the presence of God. We can do that. We can lead them to Jesus' peace. But it's important to know we are not literally Jesus' peace. We are called ambassadors for, his, for the goodness of his gospel and his grace in the world. We carry the hope of Jesus in us, but I do not claim to be the hope of the world. And if I did, you should go find another church because it means I'm capital H heretic, right? When we look at people who make these types of claims in the world, we look at them with great skepticism. There is one hope for the world according to the scripture, and his name is Christ. And so what usually happens is with a person who seeks the church or something else, when they, when they look to people like this, relationships like this, with a good motive, they desire, they seek a quick fix. They want the functional savior. And they eventually get disappointed or frustrated when even well-meaning people who do their best to meet their needs cannot deliver the type of peace that their heart desires, the type of peace their heart that needs. Because there's only one person who can do that. And so the reason this person will remain so troubled in their spirit is because they fundamentally misunderstand what God's peace is, and in particular where it comes from. Nowhere in the Bible does God say a person should pursue this type of peace in another person. All you're going to do is put a yoke on that person that they cannot, it, it'll break them. That's what will happen. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that you should look to a church like this or believe that if any circumstance in our life changes, that that is enough to restore to us what only Jesus can give us. In other words, true gospel peace is never found when you're broke and you stumble upon some money. The money helps, don't get me wrong, but the paper, think about this, the green paper that our culture declares as valuable is not enough to meet the needs of your heart in the way Jesus can. Or maybe you're in a difficult educational environment right now, or you're at a job that you don't like, it's challenging or difficult, there are real problems there. True gospel peace is not you disliking your job and then thinking once I get a better job or a greater job or a nicer job, then, then everything goes away, my problems go away. Because to see like life like this, the, the circumstance swap, what happens here is the, the root of what is actually robbing us of our peace in these circumstances is going to get carried over to our new circumstances. If there is an un, uh, unattended bitterness in our heart or even a deep-seated issue that Jesus is trying to, to bring peace to in our lives, when it is left unaddressed, it is just a matter of time before the weed of discontent grows in a new circumstance. You carry the weed with you. The circumstance might change, but eventually it grows again if left unattended. So listen, true gospel peace is not defined by what goes on around us. It cannot be because it means then what is most important in our lives is what goes on around us. Rather, it is an attitude of the heart that Jesus gives us. When we embrace and receive him, we, all the other stuff we've talked about, when we, we begin to fit ourselves with these beautiful truths of these armors, when you realize this, you've taken your first step to the road of the kind of gospel peace that Paul talks about here. When your feet are fitted with the readiness of the good news of Jesus, you are actually able to endure and deal with anything. And I want to explain this. Perhaps not the only, but at least what I think is one of the best examples we have of this in the Bible, takes place in the Gospel of John, between Jesus and his disciples the night before his crucifixion, and what we know now as the Last Supper. So Christ's disciples had been with Jesus for several years, and after living on a, on a high, a spiritual mountaintop, think about this, they were walking the earth with Jesus for about three years. What happens is their world goes into utter chaos pretty quickly. 
Because at the end of this narrative in the, the Last Supper, Jesus is beginning to prepare them for the fact that in about 24 hours' time, the world that they have come to understand is going to come crashing down around them. They are going to go from the mountaintop to the valley of despair. And so they are slowly coming to the realization that their time with Jesus on earth was coming to an end. They didn't want him to be taken and crucified. In fact, we even see this with the life of Peter. You have this moment where Peter's trying to sort of stop that moment. Sort of naturally, if you were this close with a person and didn't fully understand what was about to happen, not even fully knowing the cross was in front of them yet, of course we would see them intervene like this. They, they were trying to save Jesus. It's interesting. They're trying to do to him what he knows he needs to do for them. And they want Jesus to return to this, to this time in life when things were less troubling, when they were just dealing with hungry children and feeding the masses. That was a, a much better time than recognizing like there's a local authority trying to hunt you down for your life because of these truths that this guy named Jesus is sharing in the world. They wanted Jesus to give them peace. Truly, they didn't know it yet, but they wanted the cross to go away. That's what they wanted. Now look at how Jesus responds here. We know that Jesus goes to the cross volitionally for us. He does not have to go there, but he does go there because of his great affection for his father and his deep love for us. He doesn't change the circumstance. He doesn't take anything away. In fact, he, in somewhat cryptic ways, begins to warn them that things are going to get a little worse before they get a little better. However, in his grace, he also reminds them of the great promises of the gospel story he's writing at that very moment in his life. That his peace would be with them and would sustain them no matter what they faced. He was trying to show them that true peace in this life doesn't come from the changing of circumstances. It comes from never forgetting who Jesus is, who we are in Christ in the midst of our circumstances. This is the tale of the cross, at least one of the great tales that it tells us. Now, the idea of God's gospel of peace is what Paul marries to the shoe of a Roman foot soldier. This sort of 20-minute explanation of the gospel of Jesus he takes this idea and then uses it to talk about our feet, which are probably one of the most neglected things on our body. I'm not trying to you know, accuse you of, of, of not taking care of your feet. Don't hear me saying that. But I'm going to guess, since you've been in this room for the last hour, not a single one of you has thought about your feet. Any of you thought about your feet right now? Have you? Okay. One person has. <laughs> Counseling, Tuesday at 10. Pay attention. Your feet, right? They're, they're connected to your body. If you, let's just say something miraculous happened, like your feet in the hour you sat here just disappeared. You would get up and try to walk out of this place and you would not walk, right? They are central to our lives. They are, they are the kinds of things that we don't think a lot about, usually, because they're at the bottom of our body. Yet we have this interesting connection between something so significant, the good news of the gospel of peace being connected to our feet, to shoes, literally, is what we're talking about here. And it's really important that we explore the reason why. Out of all of the glorious pieces of armor Paul could have equated God's gospel with, think about this, stuff like the breastplate, the sword, the helmet, a shield. These are like the Mac Daddy pieces of, of the, the suit of armor. He doesn't refer to any of those with this. Why does he connect what appears to be the least glorious piece of a soldier's toolkit to, to the, one of the most significant truths in the whole Bible, Old and New Testament? God's redemptive love for the world. Well, while shoes aren't as cool as a sword, they are just as important. Let me explain. Practically speaking, shoes had the ability to make or break a soldier and consequently win or lose a war. One of the tools that made the great Greek and Roman armies so effective in history was in part because they were equipped with good shoes. 
It's a priority that exists to this very day in any modern army. We just call them boots now. And even if you look at, uh, look at the American military in the past hundred years, the evolution of what has been worn on feet is constantly getting better. I mean, they're like almost super boots now what are worn. And I bet if you talk to somebody who served in the military 40 or 50 years ago and somebody who's serving in it right now, you would find a drastic difference in the quality of the shoe, of the boot. Because there's a deep recognition in a military circle that what you put on a soldier's feet really matters. Good shoes, past and present, were and are a benefit to an army in a number of ways. Let me give you a handful of the reasons why. First and most obviously, you can all experience this too, they protected the feet of a soldier from the harsh elements. If you were walking over dusty terrain, or rocky terrain, or just unsafe terrain, that, that tool on your foot is what protects the very nature of your feet from the hardness of the earth that seeks to hurt your feet. Very important protection. Secondly, in, in a, a military context, they make a soldier very mobile. If you want to know why soldiers to this very day drill and march, it's because they spend a great time moving from place to place oftentimes without the luxury of vehicles. So being mobile is incredibly important because it means that an advancing army can cover great amounts of ground quickly. They can move up on an enemy quickly. This means a soldier, this is why the word readiness, nimbleness I like to use is used here. This means a soldier can quickly respond to a threat, whatever is in front of them. They can get up and move. They don't have to wait for something to get there. They literally get up, throw their rucksack on and move. Thirdly, they provide traction, superior traction. For example, if you were wearing a, a, a type of fitting, a shoe fitting, called an ice skate in this room, it would be an absolutely wrong match for the terrain you're walking on. So these shoes were fitted, they were designed for the types of terrain that a soldier was walking through. So they would not lose their fitting, not just as they walk, but think about this. Think about especially in the old world, where combat is almost entirely hand-to-hand. -hand. Think about how catastrophic it would be if you were fighting another person in hand-to-hand -hand combat and were slipping because your shoes could not grasp the terrain you were fighting on. Good shoes, as neglected as they might be in our minds, good shoes on a soldier literally meant a handful of things. Readiness, nimbleness, attraction and stability on the battlefield that meant it would be very difficult, if even possible, to lose your footing, at least not because of the shoes. Even as waves of enemy soldiers were rushing, from, rushing through, through your lines. It meant in combat, here's the connection, you'd be able to stand firm no matter what was coming at you because your feet were firmly planted in something stable, something anchored in something that did not budge. And this is why Paul links the glorious nature of God's gospel of peace to the shoes, the things we fit on our feet, at least in this case to, a, to the, the first century reality of a, what is most likely a Roman soldier. He's trying to tell us that just like a Roman soldier, known for their prowess on the battlefield and their ability to do what they were going to do, they were one of the greatest armies in the world. Just like that sort of victory, that power, that authority, when you are in Christ, when you desire to grow in the truths and the promises of his gospel and peace, no matter where you go, no matter how you have to respond, no matter what you face in life, you can have a peace in your heart because you know that you can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. There is no circumstance in life, even the very thing that takes our physical life, death, that can undo the footing we have in the, in the gospel of Jesus. Why is this? Well, rather naturally, the shoe makes sense because you face it with your feet firmly planted in God's gospel of peace and with the full authority of Jesus with you. 
You're not only in the shoes of the gospel of peace, you literally have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you. You have the full complement of the heavens to be able to look at whatever is going on in front of you and to endure it, to overcome it, and to live in a way that is truly victorious. Like a disciplined warrior whose footing was glued to the earth as they prepared for battle, our feet, when they are fitted with the gospel of God, are glued to the earth too. They allow us to stand firm against anything life throws at us. And that's why functional saviors, when you think about it in light of this, they're just an incredibly silly thing. Our hearts long for them because we think they're easy, cheap, and quick fixes. And although we regularly seek them at times in life, they're not the thing we should be seeking. Because according to this teaching, they are the equivalent to running around a battlefield barefoot. And they often invite more problems into our lives and a greater, a greater opportunity for defeat than, defeat than they actually do a confidence and victory in Christ. And so as we close, when, when it comes to finding peace in the Christian life, I said this about a, uh, the, the belt buckle of truth and, and the breastplate of righteousness. I, I want to sort of close in the same way. I want to share with you sort of two prevailing philosophies that have often permeated the hearts and minds of Christians when it comes to how we stand firm in this world. Both are a bit naive, and ironically, both have shreds of truth in them. Both are catastrophic if you apply them in your life without the, without the fitting of the gospel of Jesus. The first is, is, I think, very naive. It says that if you and I want to find peace in life, if we want to stand firm, the nature of what I'm about to say is, is an okay statement, but I actually think it can be problematic. The idea is that you've got to let go of everything in life and just trust God. Now, please hear me. I am not at all arguing against deeply and more meaningfully trusting God. But the idea behind this is sort of like give up any responsibility in what's going on in your life and just trust God. That is, that is usually the way this is presented. And while there is a deep partial truth here, we want to grow in our desire to, to, uh, to, to follow Jesus and, and to look to him and to, to trust in him. We want to be mindful of the fact that that is probably not going to be a comforting statement to somebody who's enduring hardship when they don't know how to let go of something. Or maybe what they're dealing with in life they actually can't let go of. It's a partial truth, the trust side, but the, the, the responsibility element is debatable. On the other side of the fence is the unbearable and unrealistic command. The way I like to say this is to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. What somebody says here is, hey, in the name of God, fix yourself. Whatever it is you're dealing with, fix the situation. And the cliche associated with this, you've probably heard this, goes something like this, you know, God is only going to help people who really help themselves. And what's ironic about these things is that there are shreds of truth about these two statements. However, each of these, when left alone or fully executed without the grace of Jesus, creates a problem. They're, they're life philosophies that I do not believe alone are going to restore your, the joy to your heart or help you to really stand firm in the ways of Jesus. There is a, there is a third way here. Knowing that there's a bit of both of these things that need to be applied in our lives. And I can't fully explain the marriage of these two ideas, but I will say that there is a, a bit of a paradoxical reality. That we cannot overcome our trials and our strength alone. We cannot do that. We cannot. We cannot move into things without Jesus Christ. We cannot deal with the, with the problems of the heavens in our own strength. That's why Paul says we don't wrestle just with flesh and blood. We wrestle at times with things that are so far beyond our pay grade. They require us to not only recognize but to evoke the presence of Jesus in our lives to deal with these things. But we're also taught in a passage like this that to stand firm in the world, we cannot remove our efforts. The whole idea about the armor of God is that God gives you and me these tools. And he says, spend your life studying them. Praying over them, 
being in accountable relationships with people who can help these things come about in your life. Have somebody in your life that can say, hey, man, you have no peace in your heart, and I want to be here for you. We can't just read these things and then forget about them. There is a responsibility we have, and that's the main idea the shoes of the gospel of peace are trying to show us. We have to realize that life truly can be a struggle at times. Peace does not mean God will magically make you and I feel better the instant we ask for it. Nor does he expect us to pull ourselves up by our own spiritual morality or physical morality. We cannot do that. He expects us to labor in his grace. To work out, Paul says, our salvation with fear and trembling. There's a deep recognition in these ideas of who God is. But also the fact that we've been invited to be in a relationship with God. And to neglect any relationship signifies an unhealthy element of that relationship. We know God does not neglect us. So we have to be mindful of the areas of our lives where we might be neglecting him. And he gives us his armor to do just this, to learn how to walk, in, to walk in the shadow of the goodness of Jesus. But the truth here is that only you have the ability to fit your life with these things. So what you do with what Paul has said here is now entirely up to you as you leave this room. You can listen to this sermon again. You can ignore it. You can ask God how to apply it. The decision you make now with this truth and the ones we've discussed about is truly yours to make. And so this morning, I leave you with this very simple question. Ask yourself, what have you planted your feet in? What, are, what, what readiness have you fitted your feet with that you are trying to find satisfaction in this world with? What is your, your nimbleness, your readiness, your response? If life is difficult, do, is the readiness of your feet is stress and anxiety, right? That's a sort of fitting that we know is a way you can walk in life, but Jesus is pretty clear that worrying like that won't add a day to our lives and very likely, based on modern medicine, will detract several, right? We can, we can go to the plow, simply meaning we can fit our feet with me, with self. You know, I'm a problem solver, I'm a fixer, I'm going to get things done, get it right. Until you reach a problem that's so far beyond your pay grade, you can't fix it. You, can't, you don't own shoes big enough to deal with that. Maybe we wallow or we, we automatically put on the shoes of defeat and we think, life's just too hard, I'm going to give up. Or maybe, maybe what we do is we recognize that none of these are great options. And Jesus has given us a new pair of shoes. So ask yourself, what are the shoes you are wearing right now? And if you're not wearing the gospel of peace, put them on, or at least ask Jesus to give you the strength to do so. Pray with me.